Hi, I'm Steve Addison and this is the Movements Podcast. It's a podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we travel to New Zealand where we talk to Phil and Monica Clark about pioneering movements in the land of the long white flower. out to New Zealand from the UK uh, six and a half years ago and part of the logic in bringing us out here was to see whether God really had a purpose for Church Army going forwards. It, it kind of uh, reached a, a bit of a, a stuck place I think um, and soon after we arrived Tim Shire came over from Australia and, and he was speaking to some of our GAP students and he was explaining about the four fields and CPMs and all this kind of stuff. And we, we just kind of got off the plane about a week earlier and we're still a little bit fuzzy-headed. And Tim was kind of loading all this stuff onto us and we were, well, I was pretty freaked by it all and, and didn't really grasp at all what he was going on about, to be really honest. It just felt way too different from anything we'd done before. But on reflection, we had a sense that maybe God was telling us something. And then shortly after that, Bill Smith was over in Australia for two weeks. So I went over and had two weeks with uh, Yoda Bill, which was an incredible experience, uh, and again, totally freaked me out. The intensity of the guy, the experience, the richness of his knowledge and wisdom. Uh, but again, he made it kind of idiot-proof. It was so simple, and, and that was so attractive. So Bill's been over here to New Zealand twice. We've had little training tours. We've had uh, Chuck Wood over. We've had Tim Shire a number of times coming over. So these guys have, have really fed into New Zealand, and I just love, I need the basic stuff again and again. You know, I'm a pretty slow learner, uh, and, and it, we all know it takes a number of touches before you begin to really take it on board properly. So, so Phil, there were some key people that, that God brought across your path, or eventually you started seeking out. What was going on for you, Monica? Because you weren't able to be at, at all those events. I don't think you're at the Bill Smith event. How, how were you sort of getting infected by this stuff? It certainly was not just secondhand. Um, again, I'm a, I love practical application. I love things that are simple and can be done by everyone and anyone. So that sounded far more um, exciting to me being the out in the field on the, well, on the coalface girl. Um, something I could apply and help others apply for themselves. That to me was so tempting because... As I say, it's multipliable. It's, it's just my girls out there that I get into contact with by scouring the streets and hanging around the marketplaces. They, they saw that. And they, a lot of them were not, uh, sorry, brainwashed, I nearly said. They were not heavily influenced by churchianity. They were the non-Christians or the backsliddens or the, the ones that had it as a child in Sunday school, but then, you know, it was not part of their lives anymore. And for them, it made sense because it was so simple they could get their head around it. Can you give us uh, maybe a, a story of either a group or some new disciples that were discovering what you've just described? Well, I suppose our favorite one is one of the most unlikely candidates in the, uh, on the, the surface of the earth. Um, I can't give names, but, well, he was a um, um, drug addict, uh, and while he was still in an able body, he was uh, uh, heavily involved in all sorts of crime, um, a right button. Um, but by the time we met him at his door, when we did door knocking, he was in a wheelchair because he um, had MS, so he couldn't do the crime anymore, so that wasn't a choice, that was just he couldn't. 
Um, and he still happily took the drugs, and that was partially to, to counteract the pain and the, the discomfort of his condition, but also because he'd always done it. And, and he was just mid-30s. He was not an old man, but he was, there was very little of him left. And when, well, when Philip saw him, he thought, of, thought nah, nah, not that one. He'll never take it on board. Um, and, and me, in my German way, I said, no, we go anyway. Um, and there was that dog in the yard. And he says, oh, no, there's a big dog in the yard. We can't go there. And I says, it's a poodle. Come on. <laughs> so we, we met our, our friend at the door. And he really had that face that said, I've done life, you know, in all the wrong ways. And there's very little left here to respond to anything. Um, but he opened the, the, the patio door and we started talking and, you know, listened to his story. And it was quite a story. And, and then, you know, can we tell you our story and engaged with him. And he was with us all the way. Now, we were not the first ones to come to his door. He had the moments, the J-dubs, the, the, he had a bit of, of Dolek Reflo or whatever, some, some American, you know, guys on, on, on Sky. And he had heard it all, but it was all just entertainment to him. When we came to his door, something clicked, unlike with the J-Dubs and, and, and the Mormons. Something clicked there. And he, his responses were just so incredible of, do you want this? Yes, of course I want this. Well, 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 hang on. Do you really understand what you're saying yes to? What do you mean? <laughs> are you a sinner? Look at me. I just told you my story. What do you mean are you a sinner? It was just so real, so deep, and so genuine. Um, and so he got baptized. And he then was moved by, because of his health conditions into some sheltered accommodation kind of place. And I visited him many times after that. And he was always the cheeky monkey. He's always been in his life. And he would, <laughs> yes, he, when, when, one, when I visited him, he would, there, there were interesting conversations. But there he was sharing the Bible with his inmates, with the other ones in that sheltered accommodation and and he would also do stuff that wasn't quite kosher, but then we all know that is the case for all of us. Some are just better in hiding it than others. Um, but just to see his life being changed, really being changed, mm. in the condition he was in when he had every, excuse, every reason to say, you know, a certain amount of things up to God because look what he did to me. He didn't do that. He realized God loves him and the, the, the crap in his, sorry, the, the, the not good things in his life were mainly his own doing and he didn't blame God and he wanted salvation. He wanted coming out of that life. He wanted a new start and he grabbed it with both hands. Okay, so, so there's a couple of things going on. One, one is you're hearing these new ideas from Tim Shire, you're going deeper with Bill Smith, but you're also getting out into the field and, and seeing how the simplicity and the power of, of the methods and the Discovery Bible study, they're changing. It's instantly you're seeing lives change. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, it was interesting. When we came over here, like a good missionary, <clears throat> I listened to lots of church leaders and I asked what kind of evangelism works, what approach works. And they all talked about friendship evangelism and process evangelism and blah, blah, blah. And after a while, I realized I needed to ask more questions like, can you show me some people who've come to faith recently in your church? And, and they couldn't. There really weren't people coming to faith other than a handful via Alpha and stuff like that. So when Tim came over for two weeks again, and we had some GAP students, and we went to the community we were living in, we went to the local police station and said, can you tell us which are the worst streets in this community? And they were just blown away that we wanted to go knock on doors and connect with people. Um, and everybody said, 
you know, that we spoke to that door knocking is a complete waste of time. And yet we found it incredibly effective. There's a real openness in New Zealand. And we've been banging this drum for about four years now. There's such an openness spiritually here that people want that They're looking for something, but they've got no idea what they're looking for. And they're certainly not going to walk into our churches to find God because they don't even know that he's there. So, yeah, for us, door knocking um, has been incredibly effective. And we still do that. In fact, I heard the other day someone said that Anglicans are doing more door-knocking in New Zealand than any other denomination. And, and if that's true, that's phenomenal, because it's certainly not what Anglicans are known for. Um, the Discovery Bible Study has, has been just such a simple, effective way of chatting about Jesus, which is what we want to do. And without you know, needing to know loads of stuff, without imposing beliefs on other people, it, it's a real opportunity to share. And, and we, Again, we found people from all backgrounds uh, are really willing to engage with that. We've actually seen um, one guy in, further north from Auckland who's seen fourth-generational church planting take place. This guy has seen people come to faith. <laughs> he started Discovery Bible Study, which is very quickly the group have become church. And they, in turn, have planted another church, which is second generation, who planted another church, which is third generation, who planted another church. So it's not one person running around like a maniac uh, planting loads of churches. It's one person training others who pass on the DNA, the church planting DNA. And, and we found um, that as if, if people come to faith but are not baptised, it tends to fall away quickly. If people form groups but never get around to forming churches, they tend to fall away quickly as well. So that's one of the key lessons that we're learning. Um, that there's a need to do that, to see people baptised as well as, as come to faith. And as well as starting groups, you've got to start churches and get that group to self-identify as a church. That's been quite key. How have you seen this go beyond your local area to other parts of New Zealand? Well, <clears throat> through the, the training that we've put on and, and other people that we've invited over, we've got quite a large network now. And, and some of the guys that we're working with are seeing really exciting growth. Um, there's a guy north of Auckland who's... Um, seen a number of people come to faith. He started groups which have become churches very quickly, and they're seeing uh, generational growth. So the church that he starts, the people in that group speak about Jesus to some of their friends and family. They come to faith, and so they don't add them to their church. They start a new church, and that is happening to the fourth generation, which is is really significant. And they're mostly new believers. Yes, they are. Yeah, definitely. They're, they're not people coming from other churches. It's uh, really exciting that, that the new believers, as I think Monica said earlier, that they've just got an openness to this stuff. They haven't got loads of stuff to unlearn. So when they read the book of Acts particularly and they see how the church spread in the early days, that's their expectation and that's what they're seeing. Okay. It is also mm -hmm. the, the indigenous people of New Zealand, the Maori, that um, you know, this particular growth is happening in. And I guess it works very well with their culture, mm -hmm. that whole meeting as a whanau, as a bigger family, as a tribe, and, and do stuff as a tribe. When you, when you find your person of peace, um, your, your Timothy, you train him, her, and, and that person then infiltrates the whole, their whole peer group. But with, with the, the Maori, that means the whole tribe, because they do the huis, the, the meetings very well. And, and once it, it, it's like, I mean, it really works like it's written in the book. The whole household, the whole tribe comes to faith or they start grappling with this stuff. And again, because T4T is so simple, 
they can apply it immediately in their far now and run these discovery Bible studies with no problem because that's what they do anyway as a people group in their culture. So it, with with that particular bunch up in the in the far north, it is just expanding like wildfire because it also goes very well with their culture. What else are you seeing in terms of uh, spread across other parts of New Zealand? I think the evangelism scene has really been transformed in recent years. That we've got such confidence now uh, in the gospel, whereas I think that had been lacking. We're seeing healing become more prominent uh, in New Zealand. And, and that's kind of a big theme at the new wine festivals this year again. And a lot of people are seeing that, as in the book of Acts, you know, signs and wonders are a great way of evangelism happening. So I think evangelism is, is really taken off and we're becoming much more effective. We're learning how to communicate with modern day Kiwis. But the discipleship thing is, is probably a greater challenge for us. That's where uh, we really need to to be better and, and learn how to do it more accurately, you know, more effectively. Um, that, that's the big challenge, but we're seeing it. We're seeing groups starting, we're seeing churches planted, but just the kind of, you know, this, this is the early harvest. It's not by any means a full-grown harvest, uh, but we're seeing really encouraging signs in, in lots of different places across New Zealand, different contexts. It takes time. We, we did training in one city in New Zealand about two and a half years ago, and we took people out door knocking and this was in an Anglican church, the people were absolutely petrified because they'd been told to expect loads of abuse. You know, it's not what we do. Anyway, we took them out, and it was really great, and they just came back so excited by how effective it was, how warm people were. Uh, In fact, the only abuse we got was from a Muslim family who told us we should be doing it more often as Christians. You know, um, now, we didn't really have good follow-up with that church, partly for different reasons. But anyway, we met these two ladies from the same church, and they were just so on fire. That weekend for them was transformative, and we took them out again from New Wine to pray for healing for people. And they were just so easy, just walking up to total strangers and sharing their faith and offering to pray. So again, it's it's not an instant cure. It's not changing overnight, but slowly we're seeing such a, a definite change in the atmosphere. Now, recently, I guess over the the last year, uh, Phil, you you've had some huge challenges with with your health. Uh, what's been going on for for you and Monica during this season? Yeah, well, I've enjoyed really good health for fifty three years, but on twenty fourth of April last year, um, pretty much out of the blue, I was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, and your, your esophagus is the tube that connects your throat to your stomach. And, and it's a pretty aggressive cancer. And, and the other problem with it is that you don't know you have it until you can't swallow food anymore. So we were told straight away that it was it was widespread. It spread to my kidneys and my lymph nodes, and it was growing around my aorta and, and other places. There was no operation. It, it, was, it was straight into palliative care. Um, so no treatment other than keeping you alive for a while and hopefully giving you a bit of quality of life. And they, they gave a, a prognosis of with treatment... I would have between six and nine months, so nine months maximum. And, and it, looking back, that was kind of like a curse, really, and I, I assumed they knew what they were talking about, and I responded as someone who was slowly dying. Uh, obviously, I couldn't eat solid food, so I was you know, being fed liquid food initially, but then I couldn't even swallow liquid food, so I had a tube up my nose. I lost 30 kilograms. I was getting weaker and weaker. I, I reached a stage where I couldn't walk, so we had a wheelchair, 
I, I couldn't shower because I couldn't stand long enough, so I was having baths, and Monica was getting me out of the bath and feeding, uh, drying me and dressing me and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I had, when I started chemotherapy, I responded badly, so my kidneys just about packed in. I had diarrhea for weeks on end, and it reached a stage where I was um, so ill that I was kind of out of bed for an hour a day. That's all I could manage, really. And I remember coming out of hospital in, in September, my second week in hospital, and everything was such an effort. And I said to Monica and Emily, our daughter, that, you know, if this was my life now, I really didn't want to hang around any longer. Um, and at that stage, I was ready to die. And, and looking back, I was so much like the paralyzed guy whose four friends brought him to Jesus because he could never have got to Jesus on his own. And I'd love to say that in that time, I was praying and spending time with God. But really, I, I didn't have the energy and my faith was, you know, yes, I believe God can heal me, but I had no sense that he particularly wanted to. I wasn't sure. Um, you know, so hope was gone for me. I was to totally munted, as they say in New Zealand. And I was just ready for, for heaven. And people all around the world were praying. You know, our daughter did Facebook days of prayer. Uh, there's a 24 hours a day prayer cycle going. People were meeting in Auckland every week to pray for, for my health and for church army. And slowly but surely, things started changing. And um, one day we were away on holiday in, in a batch. And I just said, I really fancy bacon and eggs. Now, I hadn't eaten solid food for six months at that stage. But I wanted bacon and egg. Uh, uh, sorry, egg on toast. So Monica made me egg on toast. And I actually ate it. And it was phenomenal. You know, the, the, the taste of food again yeah. after six months. And it went down and it stayed down, which was absolutely incredible. Um, so I started eating solid food again. I had the, the tube removed from my nose. Um, I was walking again. I gave back the wheelchair. And just before Christmas, I was able to do a sponsored walk of, of half a marathon, which is about 21 kilometers. Oh. You know, so the, the turnaround in my health was phenomenal. But I was also aware that I'd been given nine months maximum. And, you know, if you calculate it, that ran out on 24th of January. Uh, and here I am. Um, you know, middle of February, it's still going strong. My health is fantastic. I'm eating really well. And, and I, you know, that's a miracle, however you look at it. Mm -hmm. um, and other people's faith carried me through and I didn't have any really. So it's been quite an incredible year. Um, I didn't respond well to being ill. You know, I, I've never been ill in my life. I hated hospital. I hated all the treatments. Um, and, and I kind of believed that I was dying. You know, that's what I was told. So it must be true. Um, but here we are in February. This is my 19th day of grace. Mm. Uh, I'm here because God's decided for some reason to keep me around for a while. And, and that is so exciting. So what what are the doctors saying? Uh, well, yeah, the last scan I had, they said that the tumor was the same size. It hadn't shrunk. And of course, I had to disagree because I was eating food again. And previously, I couldn't. I couldn't even get liquid down. You know, so to be eating food... Either I've grown a second esophagus or something's going on. So they want to do further tests on me because really they don't understand what is going on. And for a long time, they wouldn't change the prognosis. You know, even when I was kind of a month away from, from my deadline day, uh, they wouldn't change the prognosis. They've now said it could be six months, it could be two years before the cancer comes back. They don't know. But, yeah, they're baffled, which is great. So, Monica, what's, what's it been like for you to go through all of this with Phil? Good grief, I don't really want to recall that. Mm. Um, well, as you know, for us, it's all one thing. Um, life, ministry, the home, the car, it's all one package. 
Now, we, when we, six years, seven years nearly, uh, got that phone call to come out to New Zealand, we knew it was God calling us out here to change Church Army, to do something with Church Army that will make an, uh, a, a godly impact uh, on New Zealand. Now, when just that year, when things were falling into place and we could see where God is, is taking this, and some doctor says, uh, uh, you know, all this is just slithering through your fingers. It's going down the plug hole. I was confused, to say the least. I could not understand what was going on and very, very scared because... Um, well, I, I'm the, the buy one get one uh, buy one get one free. I was the get one free bit. So I was not. I didn't have a career of my own to to see me through the future. I didn't have a home to stay in the the day Philip died. I didn't have a car to drive the day Philip died. And then the doctor tells me your husband is going to die within the next few months, and I just couldn't understand it. So it was a very very dark time, a very scary time because we didn't have any provisions to. To, to, to do future in. So, so yes, it was really scary and, and confusing. And all I could do was ask people to pray for us because I just didn't have the strength or, or, or the, the vision to see a future for myself and the children who are still around me and, and Emily's still dependent on us. Um, I, I just, yeah, I couldn't see further than the tip of my nose, really, and that was not a very good mm. picture I saw there. Then... In those dark months of, of caring for Philip when he was so weak and, and it was getting worse um, in the beginning, um, I f physically felt the power of prayer. I cannot even quite explain how that works, but I was just at the end of my tether and yet I felt carried by the, this, this pillow of, of prayers holding me up. When, when there was just no lo logical way forward, I knew God would see me through somehow which was against all the odds the, the doctors uh, proclaimed. Um, and when, when I felt I had nothing left to give to him or anybody else, and people would still expect me to minister to them, um, when they came to visit to uh, inquire after Philip's health, what they really came for was some assurance from us that their lives would continue despite having just lost their brother or their mother or their it was already a ministry time when there was very, very little left to, to carry me, never mind anybody else. Mm. And yet there I was, actually stronger than ever, helping other people. And that can only have been God, because I really didn't feel I had anything to, left to give. Yes. And what about now? How, how do you guys see the future now? Well, it's a bit of a weird limbo time for me in that medically speaking, nothing has really changed, but I feel in such good health. I'm quite open to the possibility that God's completely healed me, and it would be great to kind of get medical confirmation of that. But I think, you know, once you've faced your own death in such a stark way, and I remember going to see my GP because um, we, we cashed in a, a, an insurance policy from England, and I had to get a form filled in. It had two options. One was this patient has a long-term serious illness the second one says death is imminent and the doctor had to tick one of those two and he ticked the box that said death is imminent and wow. you can't pretend anymore and you know you've got your theology of heaven and all that kind of stuff which is just theoretical until suddenly it becomes very very real and I think you know once you face that stuff you can't be the same person again and we've inevitably got a greater urgency I think in sharing the gospel you know this is not just 
something we feel we ought to do. It's much more important than that. Um, and, and I kind of made a deal with God. I know you probably shouldn't, but I did say that, look, if I live after 24th of January, then I'm, I'm just going to share in, in a way that I've never done before. Um, and that's happening. I think, you know, also there, there's a time when I was faced with two options. One was a miracle and one was death. And in that situation, it's very easy to say, God, I really do totally commit myself and put myself into your hands. And, and I did that. And I, and I used to think that kind of making a greater commitment to God is about doing more. So I'll get up earlier to pray. I'll spend more time reading the Bible. I'll join more rotors in church or whatever. But actually, my experience is that greater commitment to God actually means greater grace. It means living not bound by you know, having this pressure of doing stuff, but actually saying, God, here I am, I'm available today. What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to meet? So it's not a pressured commitment. It's a wonderful commitment of saying, God, I commit myself into your hands and I'm going to live in the light of your grace, which is so dominant now. And that's been a really, really lovely thing, you know, allowing God to kind of guide what we pray for, allowing God to guide how we live and who we meet and who we spend time with and all that kind of stuff. So that's been lovely. I think the other thing is that I always believe that when God blesses us, he doesn't just do it so that we can have a fun time. He does it so that we can pass it on. And when it comes to healing, I've probably been a little bit agnostic. Yeah, I kind of believe in it, but it's never been particularly important and I wasn't sure. Um, I've never really seen healings happen. But having experienced healing from God in such a very, very undeniable, miraculous way... I just long to pass it on. So I'm, I'm sharing my story a lot, both with people on the street or wherever, my physio, um, the community nurses that come around. Anybody who comes into our house is going to hear my story of God's <laughs> yeah. healing. But also in church contexts, um, to, to share the story, but also to pray with people. And, you know, we, we find that prayers for healing work a lot better with those who are not Christians, often rather than those who are. Because as Christians, we come with all theology and we explain why healing maybe sometimes doesn't happen and blah, blah, blah. But with non-Christians, they just assume that if God's a real, if God is real, he's powerful and therefore he can heal. So, yeah, there's, there's I think, a much deeper walk with God. There's an openness to the spirit. That there's a determination to serve him more fully than I've ever really done in the past. And there's certainly a greater urgency. That, that this is serious stuff. It's the most serious stuff ever. You know, it's not just about improving people's lives or social circumstances or economics. This is eternity changing stuff. You know, so what could possibly be more important than that? And what's what's God put on your heart for New Zealand? Well, you know, we, we, we talk about no place left. And I just long to see that be true for New Zealand. There's so many people that we meet who've never heard the story of Jesus. You know, Auckland is soon going to become, uh, what do they call it, a minority-majority city, or a majority-minority city where most of the people here are from minority groups. And, and it's such a cultural mix. It's a real mixing pot, which is fantastic. But the people, when we knock on their doors and, and they think New Zealand is a Christian country, and when we say, has anybody ever, ever explained to you anything about Jesus? The answer is always no, and that is heartbreaking that the church is, is just so silent and Christians have been um, told not to share mm. faith, not to talk about Jesus, not to open their Bibles. And it, it's just a nonsense. And it's a, something that Satan has put into our minds. So my longing is, is a church that is mobilized, that is confident and competent in sharing the gospel, that's ready to pray with people. 
Um, so that literally every community across New Zealand, people have had multiple opportunities to hear the gospel communicated in ways that they can respond to. And they've experienced the love of God in practical ways and they've seen the miraculous happen. Um, yeah, so quite a different New Zealand to the one we've got today. Now, in hindsight, I can see why God let us suffer as he did this last year. And I don't, I'm not saying God sends suffering or anything, but he certainly lets it happen um, in order for you to learn something, in order to push you on and give you more determination to share the good news. Now, you try and hold us back to share the good news because we can back it with our life story. Apparently through the lo- those, that last year, those last nine, ten months, um, people often say, it's amazing how strong you are. And I had always to say, no, I'm not strong, but God is holding us together and holding us up. Now we actually have uh, not just the story of God sees you through suffering, but also the added bonus, if you want to, um, of saying, and he loves us to bits. Look at what happened. And having a story like that to share, how can we not? And that kind of story spreads out there, especially among the non-Christians. There's power in in, in, in following God. There's power in, in asking God, to for help and 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 you know and, and we can share that with confidence and and make that count watch this space